Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today's episode serves as the inaugural Margin Call Book Club. First time we've ever done this. Uh, we've invited two guests and longtime friends, Josue Rojas and Travis Johnson, and asked them each to present a recent book. Uh, and I've got one I'll be sharing as well. Uh, just so you have a heads up, we'll be reviewing Heavy by Keith Lehman, which is a memoir about so many things, food, bodies, race, family, America itself. Heavy was published in 2018 to near unanimous acclaim, and it's now out in paperback, which I learned yesterday when I went to go get my copy. I'm a fast reader. <laughs> uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll also be discussing Tommy Orange's novel, There, There, special to many of us, three out of the four of us on the show today, because it is set in the Bay Area, primarily in Oakland, and takes on pressing themes of the change in that region, displacement, and so many other things that we'll get to. And finally, we'll discuss Go Ahead in the Rain, Hanif Abdul-Rakib's memoir and love letter to A Tribe Called Quest. Much to discuss, much to discuss. Uh, first of all, welcome to Josue and Travis, two of my favorite people. I've known both of you for well over a decade. Great friends. I'm so glad you guys get to be together. Uh, we can talk more about what happened at the lake later. It sounds like the premise for a, a horror film, but I'm glad we're all together and nobody's drowning. <laughs> for our listeners, I'm just going to le- let that be as cryptic as, as yeah. it sounds. <laughs> for the best. Yes. Uh, and of course, with us as always, our producer, Eming Piano who keeps us all on task and sounding good. Welcome, welcome all. I want to start with you, Travis, Okay. Uh, because it's your first time on the show. And we have a rule here. If it's your first time, you have to go first. Uh, that's a good rule. That's actually not a rule here. That's a rule from Fight Club, I think. But <laughs> since I wanted you to go first, and it happens to be your first time on the show, and also you've, you're making a lot of appearances on the Quest On site right now, I just want to yeah. give you a quick plug as a contributor. Thank uh, you. You have your Jesse Smollett story on today, um, and your Michael Jackson piece from last week. Gracious contributions. If our listeners haven't seen these stories yet, please check them out. Uh, Travis is an old friend, but a new contributor to the site. Uh, very, very gifted writer and a natural cultural commentator. Thank among, you so much. Among many other things, Travis. <laughs> um, so as you know, I ha- did not read, had not read Heavy until you recommended it to me. But uh, because I trust your judgment and because you're a gifted writer and we talk about writing all the time and books when we do talk, uh, I went out to get a copy. It is a beautiful book. Yeah. Heartbreaking, wonderfully written. Uh, I, as you know, am a nonfiction and memoir writer. I read these obsessively. I'm a very critical reader. Yes. Uh, as you know, uh, but this is very just brilliantly conceived yeah. uh, as a memoir. Uh, and just for our readers and for others in the booth today, uh, give us a little bit of overview. Tell us what heavy is uh, and what drew you to it. Sure. Uh, so this is my third, the book, third book of his that I've read. He has a prior memoir um, called How to Kill Others and Yourself Solely in America and a novel called Long Division, both great. Uh, And I took my time sort of getting into Heavy for various reasons. But what it is, is a memoir written as a letter to his mother. Um, And he unpacks their life together, growing up with a single parent, poor uh, in Mississippi as a Black man. And it's just, it's beautifully written, timely, but so vulnerable and so like unflinching and like how he tackles abuse 
and how men are socialized and how he does all of that with such heart. Um, I loved, I didn't, couldn't put it down from the first word to the last. It was just, like you said, beautifully conceived, so honest, um, heartbreaking, but like I would describe it as loving. Uh, and it struck I me because there are not many writers at all, but it particularly, I don't find a lot of books by men of that are written love, like with so much love um, and so much forgiveness in them about these, about what he's tackling in the book. And so that's why I love him. And that's what made me think of you. Cause I think of you as a very similar writer. Um, and I don't suggest many books to you cause you are uh, a hard, hard to please. But I thought <laughs> that you would really love this and really like resonate with it. Cause a lot of the same things that he talks about, I find in your work at approximately the same time, but in a different area, but with so many similarities. I was going to say the same thing about your own writing. I mean, obviously, there's plenty of biographical overlap right. uh, between you and this author. But also, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, this is something that we talk about, you and I, all the time. Uh, but how rare it is to find an authentic sounding voice that's able to talk about being a man. You know, yeah. like, like the vulnerability of masculinity, where anger actually comes from. Yes. And like, it's just, and he does such a good job of it. It doesn't feel hackneyed. He owns all of his own flaws, which I think is the first thing we have to do when we talk about ourselves and, and being. But in such, in, he does that in such a beautiful way because it's responsible as opposed to like, because there's a way in which he could have written this book and just been sorry. And who wants to do like 200 yeah. pages of an apology, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's such responsibility and such clarity that you can't help but see yourself and learn so much in the way he um, like unpacks so many things. Yeah. He also is upfront. I mean, I, I was grabbed right away. As you said, it, it basically reads itself to you. It's like such a page turner. It almost becomes an audio book. But the, the way he gets you uh, is, of course, what we love is the unreliable narrator. He says right away that he wanted to write a lie. Right. Yeah. Um, and this first section and the language here, it's poetic. It's a prose poem. Uh, and I just want to re read a little bit of it. This is this is a section of the very first chapter, which almost feels like a prologue. Um, but he starts off saying, I did not want to write to you, addressing us, the reader. I wanted to write a lie. I did not want to write honestly about black lies, black thighs, black loves, black laughs, black foods, black addictions, black stretch marks, black dollars, black words, black abuses, black blues, black belly buttons, black winds, black bends, black bends, black consent, black parents or black children. I did not want to write about us. I wanted to write an American memoir. Um, it's a beautiful paragraph, if only just sonically. Um, but thematically, it's just so clever. And it's really an indication of his language. It's an announcement of what we're getting into uh, when we start this book. Right. Uh, he sounds like a poet. He's, he's in full command of his voice and of the language. Um, and I am continually struck by, by his abil ability to expand. But yeah. then when we get into themes, I mean, uh, anybody, I, I think this is fair to say, anybody who eats has food issues. <laughs> Is that fair to say? I, mean, I think that's fair to say. And I think it's fair to say that it's almost impossible to have grown up in the 80s and Black in the South and not have food issues. Another important filter. Impossible. <laughs> growing up in the 80s. And the, yeah. You did not get out of the 80s yeah. without a food issue. Yeah. I was telling somebody the other day about how many Pepsis I think I drank when I was a little kid. Like it was water. There was like no 
like restriction. It was just like, oh, just, you know, put it on your Cheerios. You know what I mean? It really was. Pepsi was mother's milk in our house, which Sugar seems un- unfathomable now. Sugar is fine as long now. as you brush your teeth. Sugar is yeah. fine as long yeah, as you brush your teeth. You're good. <laughs> Have all uh, that sugar. So I'll, I'll put my, I'm not asking you to disclose your own uh, food issues, but I am going to start off by talking about how weird I am about food so that you have a green light to talk about uh, Keith Lehman's uh, food issues, which are profound and deep and dark and very honest. Um, But I, uh, as you know, as a young person, lived in institutions for years and got so in, in, you know, formative years, right? Like uh, teenage years, 16 to 19. And got so accustomed to institutional life where it's like, boom, six o'clock, here's your breakfast. Like, you don't choose what it is. You just have it. <clears throat> Lunchtime, boom. You have, and got, so that when that container was gone and I was a 20-year-old adult and it was up to me to choose food, I just couldn't do it. I was paralyzed and didn't eat for a long time and had like overwhelmed by options because I had never ha- hadn't chosen food in so long, you know, and then went so far the other way where it was like, if I'm going to eat, I'm going to go to Jack in the Box and it has to be like a sourdough Jack and curly fries and like an Oreo shake or, you know what I mean? And like, yeah, like I wouldn't eat all day, but then like at two in the morning, like would be a Jack in the Box or whatever, you know? And for our listeners who are not, who don't have the joy of Jack in the Box, it is really delightful fast food. <laughs> I think my food issues developed almost the opposite. I grew up with a very traditional black family in the South who like loves through food. I call my family food bullies. Like it is disrespectful if you don't like eat everything in front of you enthusiastically and like fried air, like fried everything. Fried air. Um, with gravy on yeah. top. Um, I think that's at the county fair. <laughs> yeah. And so like, that's how I sort of developed these eating habits and food as comfort. And so then when I got into high school and, you know, all those anxieties that come with being gay, black in 1992, Damn. everything that I was uncomfortable in, in Nashville and the buckle of the Bible belt food <laughs> was like a go-to. So I really, that absolutely struck me how he like weaved in and he didn't even explain it. And I think he didn't even have to in the book where he turns to food um, for comfort when he goes from an argument with his mom or seeing his mom and then he's like drinking or eating everything and and how he like breaks in his his weight. He's hyper aware of how much he weighs yeah. at every stage in the book, and how his body feels, and the proximity of his thighs to each other, um, mm-hmm. and how that makes him feel about himself. I remember having those thoughts um, at that time, and how you, that's ever present, and how how you look, um, and how you think people are looking at you, um, and how your body feels, and how you think your body makes other people feel is always in your mind. Yeah. Um, and that starts then. You become hyper aware of that at a very young age. Yeah. And I think men just never talk about it. And so that's what makes it so striking in the book, how he's just honest about that, how he just breaks that down so yeah. beautifully. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful point, just because as reading this, I, you know, I know that I've heard similar stories. I'm aware of the fact that men contend with body image issues. I've you know, contending with that stuff myself. I think we all do. We just don't talk about it, which is kind of the classic male problem, which is why uh, it was so affecting to hear him talk about it, honestly. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's something that we shy away from because we shy away from things that make us appear weak, you know? So expressing insecurity about your body, which is a symbol of strength, um, you know, it's, it's a different issue from female body issues that have, yeah. you know, or they're loaded in their own ways that are sexual. But this really is about virility and strength, you know? And if you're like, if, if you don't just 
can communicate that with your body, uh, you're weak, you know? Yeah. I want to, that yeah. actually brings into my favorite, my favorite few lines of the book. Please share. Cause he uses body. So in so many different ways in the book, but my favorite like paragraph, I guess is my body knew things, my mouth and my mind couldn't, or maybe wouldn't express. I knew that all over my neighborhood, boys were trained to harm girls in ways that girls could never harm boys. Straight kids were trained to harm queer kids in ways queer kids could never harm straight kids. Men were trained to harm women in ways women could never harm men. Parents were trained to harm children in ways children would never harm parents. Babysitters were trained to harm kids in ways kids could never harm babysitters. My body knew white folks were trained to harm us in ways we could never harm them. So profound. Oh my God. Yeah. I remember that passage. Well chosen. Partially because it's, it explores all of those relationships. Right. I mean, not in a dark worldview where it's like everybody's hurting everybody. It's just that each of those exchanges is unique. Each of those exchanges is nuanced. Um, yeah. And there's no way to break out of the training if you don't identify it and talk about it. And that's so much of what the book is about. Yeah, it is. It's it's a therapeutic experience. Yeah. You know, it forces you to confront yourself. A uh, beautiful book. Thank you for introducing me to it. Thank you for introducing our readers to it. Um, and obviously, I want to keep you around as we move to there, there, sure. uh, because I'm hoping that you'll chime in on some of this. There are similar themes here. You know, a theme is developing among these books. Um, But I do have to thank you also, Josue, uh, for encouraging me to pick up There There, because I received a copy of this from my uncle for Christmas and had heard a lot about it, saw it on everybody's lists. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm a book hoarder, right? So I'm like, all right, let me just like put it in this stack. And it was like kind of working its way down and being forgotten. Um, And... You, Josue, who I rely on and turn to regularly for, you know, pop culture recommendations. Uh, I think you were the one who told me that it was a Bay Area book, which if I knew it was set in Oakland, it wouldn't have trickled down the stack so much. You know, no disrespect to any other authors or even Tommy Orange. But of course, as soon as you mentioned that piece, um, I went right back to it. Uh, so I want to give you a chance to give us a brief overview. But um, part of the reason this is so relevant for you and I, Josue, and so many other people, but you and I in particular, uh, Josue, are always having conversations about San Francisco and the Bay Area. You and I both grew up there and have witnessed changes at different points. I've been gone from a long time for a long time, and much of my experience of these changes in, you know, kind of like a savvy uh, street-level way comes from you. You know, and and when we have these conversations, we have to use exhibits. And I would count there there as an exhibit uh, in the case of uh, our changing, rapidly changing home in the Bay Area. But that's just one of many themes in there. So tell us a little bit for those who haven't re- read it. Or it give, us, give us an overview of there there and how you came to it and um, why it spoke to you. Well, firstly, thanks for having me, man. I think um, you know this book is kind of. I guess this kind of came to me, you know, I, um, I run a nonprofit right here in the Mission District and I always take a, I take a break in the middle of the day and I take a walk and it happens to be, uh, a really beautiful bookstore called, uh, Alley Cat Books. And I just go in and I, instead of staring at a screen, I stare at book covers and it's my therapy. And so this one was just really just kind of stood out to me and it had this really great write up and, you know, all my friends were talking about it, so I had to kind of take a look. And I think um, 
I was just really pleasantly surprised. There's two things that I think always seem like a, uh, a, a secret. It's really easy to get wrong um, in writing and in media. And that's the Bay Area. And I think it's native issues, like native stories, like Native American uh, uh, experiences. So uh, this is one of those rare convergences that happens once in a lifetime, I think. And you see them both, kind of this intersection of Bay Area, uh, Native American issues just come together. And um, I mean, this guy's voice, I haven't been this excited about a writer in a really, really long time. Uh, you know, his language is just kind of profound. Uh, his understanding of the Bay is unique. Full disclosure, I haven't read the entire thing, but just what I have gotten into about halfway is just kind of incredible. Um, so I just really, I, I love this writer. I love his voice. Um, I mean, there's really some really fun things. Um, he really spent some time um, um, kind of dissecting, you know, things like violence and, and violence perpetuated within the Native community, you know, throughout history. Mm-hmm. And then how that kind of, you know, brings itself to, you know, everything from like Alcatraz and the barriers relationship with Alcatraz and, and the Native experience and the American Indian movement. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, and then into the generation after that, right? And I think as a as a young kind of Salvadorian growing up in San Francisco, with uh, from a family that escaped a war and sort of experiencing change, and then also having that just kind of trickle down generationally, um, I just kind of understood kind of what he was talking about in a certain way. So um, even though not that part, the particulars of, for example, like having my parents be part of a movement in Alcatraz or anything like that. So I just think he's just really, really powerful. And um, I mean, there's a line where he talks about riding around, finding an iPod in uh, public transit. In, oh, yeah. Uh, in Oakland. And it's only got MF Doom on it, right? He was like, you know, <laughs> my bike and, you know, I just, it just feels profound that I understood, like, yeah. you know, I understood what MF Doom was talking about. And I was just like, man, I just don't understand. I, I, this is, I know all these things. You know? It resonates. So, he has those layered referential like mixes pop culture and political in a conversational way that reminds me of another author you introduced me to years and years and years and years ago juno diaz who also is gifted at like pulling on popular culture pulling on inherited trauma but also having it be like a modern contemporary narrative that's of a place you know i i feel like you know oscar wow was of new york city in the way that there there is of oakland for instance I was so, I mean, he's really gifted. Uh, Orange is in capturing voices. You know, he's able to inhabit a number of different characters. For those who haven't read it, each chapter, you know, it cycles through the perspective of different characters. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I've just been blowing through a lot of memoir lately. So when I picked this up, even though, you know, it said a novel on the cover and I knew it was a novel when I first started, when I was reading the first chapter, I thought that this was Tommy Orange's memoir because that voice was so um, authentic, you know? And then when I get to the second chapter, it's a complete, completely different person. In a lot of ways, and this happens a lot when you and I are sharing art back and forth, but like there were so many things in here that reminded me of our own creative process. It's like that chapter in the uh, the second chapter, that character, uh, he's like a filmmaker, but like also a graffiti artist and like kind of a hood kid, but like also kind of square, but like he's native, but he looks white. You know, it's like, these are so many experiences that you and I, and just MF Doom is in there. You know, it's like the idea of chapter two of one of the most loved fiction 
pieces of fiction of this past year is set in Oakland and it's about a kid looking at graffiti on BART. You know, it just like felt like home, you know, that really, that, that really settled nicely with me. Um, I want to ask you about, you know, your thoughts on how Orange writes about, you know, what we call displacement, gentrification. Uh, it's a, it's a big theme throughout the book. I know that you're in San Francisco and from San Francisco, but the Bay is the Bay. You know, what do you think about his version of the changing place that that we're from? I mean, I think it's just one of one of those, again, one of those things that kind of gets it right. It's hard. It's hard to write about gentrification and about change of a space and have it um, not sound kind of like bitter, you know, yeah. in a certain sense. Like, oh, yeah, this is the only thing to change. And this isn't there anymore. And like, you know, we make um, sometimes you and I just instead of crying, we like to make fun of it. Be like, you know, well, it's just changed. You know, it's just, to changes. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is kind of unnatural, right? Everything from when it, when it, when it inspires violence, right? And uh, this isn't in the book, but, you know, in the mission, we had these wave of fires in 2014 and 15 that, you know, accidentally made, you know, started and made it so that people had to get displaced and leave. And, you know, landlords were um, just being kind of vicious mm-hmm. at this time. And I just think like, all right, like, you know, we're talking about, you know, the dot-com boom, then like what I call, the the later in the, the from the dot com boom the mid two thousands boom that started with the iPhone apps like I think you know the dot bomb dot com boom swelled and then left but the app boom that came after cell phones um, came about I think really has basically made gentrification really really powerful here in the Bay Area and it's not leaving you know what I mean mm-hmm. it's only growing it's only becoming more powerful. And I think, like, to be able to document the thing, I've tried several times, uh, and I have, you know, succeeded in different art projects, kind of trying to get the voices of my friends to speak about gentrification, right, to personify it uh, or to talk about it. And I think, you know, I think a Native American time frame, like, it's kind of crazy, like, when you see, like, someone who comes to San Francisco and they're like, well, I've been here for all of five years, and, you know, they grew up, really changed, they're crazy, you know? <laughs> And then, you know, you get the other ones who are like, I've been here for 10 years. Oh, my God, I remember yeah. that thing. And then, like, I mean, and I came in the 80s. And I was like, man, it's been 30 years of seeing these changes, right? Yeah. But we don't have the breadth of time that Native Americans have. It's like, oh, you got, you want to talk about changes and the stuff that, you know, your family is with. So let's talk about, <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's talk about, you know, a real, you know, breadth of seeing how, you know, this land has been used and, you know, to an extent. Actually, no, entirely, completely stolen. Yeah. And um, therefore, you know, people, you know, and, and things like, um, you know, how do you bear witness to that? How do you talk about those things without kind of, uh, I always make fun of, uh, like, when a kid's trying to explain something to you and they just can't get the words out. They're, like, kind of panting, kind of crying, kind of angry, and it's just so immediate and it's just so hard to articulate at that moment. You know, I think that kind of trips, uh, trips people up and when they're trying to make art about things that are this powerful. But I think, uh, you know, Tommy Orange is cool, calm, collected, and he's able to gather his words. And I think, you know, I think that's really commendable as an artist. Yeah, he's very clear-headed in his voice, and his criticisms are kind of like laser pointer. You know what I mean? He's not, like, throwing a Molotov cocktail at the Apple store. You know what I mean? He's just, like, roasting individual (laughs) fools. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned kind of patterns of gentrification or patterns of displacement, because as you said, you know, we've experienced many waves in San Francisco and I got the sense, uh, and I don't know if this is 
accurate, but in that same chapter of the graffiti writer Lenz, who's also, you know, goes on to become a filmmaker, you know, he goes to to get his grant, right? He has to go like in front of this panel of people and explain his project about native, you know, making a film about native people. And there's like another dude waiting, ostensibly the competition. Right. Right. And he's like, he's like, I hate everything about this dude, like looking at him. And he like describes him with like his big bushy beard. And, um, you know, he's, de- he's describing what we used to call hipsters, you know? And, mm-hmm. and in fact, that guy, uh, that scene is, uh, there's so much in it for the book because he's, he's the hipster is the one who makes the offhand remark about like, you know, Oh, you know what, uh, Gloria Steinem said about, uh, or no, sorry, Gloria Steinem. <laughs> you know what Gertrude Stein said about Oakland? Uh, there's no there there, which is where the, the title comes from. This kind of famous throwaway quote uh, about Oakland that everybody likes to use. People in San Francisco like to use it because, you know, it's the arrogance of small differences. So we like to ridicule our neighbors, you know. <laughs> but uh, I never knew the origin of it, which was you know, Gertrude Stein was bemoaning how Oakland changed from her own childhood. She was saying the Oakland that she visited had changed so much that there was no longer the there there. She missed it. Whereas I always thought of it as, you know, Oakland has no place. Oakland has no center. And Stein was being dismissive of it culturally and geographically. It's really the opposite. You know, she just experienced the change at a different rate. She was there for a different wave of change, which predated all of us. You know, if you want to talk about patterns of displacement. And to that point, the description of this guy as the displacer, as the gentrifier, also feels kind of dated, you know, like the scraggly, arty hipster, like as much as we complained and bemoaned whoever that person was, that's the that's the wave of 10 years ago. You know what I mean? That's the wave of the 2000s. That's not the Patagonia, like Google gym bag set that people are contending with in the Bay area, not to denigrate anybody who wears Patagonia or has a Google gym bag, but it's like the aesthetics are different. It's a different wave of people who are coming. Uh, and I was saying the same thing recently. I was in Williamsburg, that place. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's changed in so many ways. Right. But it's like, it's kind of corny now and it makes you miss funny. Cause you, you miss hipsters, you know, it's like, wow, no man, they were cool. Like at least they were like making art or they were in a band or something like all these guys look pretty cheesy you right. know, that, I, that I see walking past me at Kellogg diner. And I think the quote from brunch that day was RIP hipsters. <laughs> at least they believed in nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so funny yeah it's so true i'm sure you've witnessed that travis i mean yeah i feel like williamsburg has always been the like since 2004 maybe since like i've paid attention i feel like williamsburg has always been the place where we're like oh it's getting corny so we thought we knew corny when we were like oh the hipsters and we're like oh if only we had known how lucky we were yeah, it's like yeah, it's like Dante's Inferno. There's you know like eleven circles of corny, right? And we thought we were at the first circle already. <laughs> like no, right. no, no, it goes deeper. <laughs> How much more gentrified could neighbor New neighborhood New York get? And it's like oh well, we could redevelop the South Bronx if you really want us. To, yeah, let's like go. Take, like take, let's call it let's call it Sobro. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take everything. <laughs> Uh, hold my gentrifying beer (laughs) (laughs) it's good beer though you know so (laughs) you can't be that mad (laughs) yeah uh i mean you mentioned also the alcatraz chapter which i think is really powerful that's kind of when we're we're reminded that it's a novel because the metaphor has become like multi-layered um but you know at that point that character's family is literally homeless uh and they're seeking solace on alcatraz which also gives us a time shift you know i mean that 
the occupation of Alcatraz and when that chapter is set, um, you know, predates my birth, you know, uh, and it's something that we sometimes we forget about what a profound political moment that was, partly because I didn't live through it. Um, but this book kind of brings it back to life. You know, it, like I, I remember like, oh, yeah, there was a political thing where like indigenous people occupied Alcatraz and it was like a big deal, like period. You know what I mean? The way that sometimes we think of a lot of powerful political moments that were either before our time or have since passed. Um, and in that way, you know, I mentioned Juno Diaz. It's a slant comparison. You know, I just I had Juno Diaz in mind because he was another author that you introduced me to, Josue. And I, I always, sometimes when I'm reading a novel and I'm kind of like forced to take my medicine where I'm like, oh, actually, you know, here's here's the details of this brutal dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. It feels like medicine. But obviously, Juno Diaz was able to do it in a way where it was not medicine. It was really just powerful, impactful, beautiful writing about a horrible uh, time in human history. But I think Tommy Orange is able to do the same thing where I felt like I, you know what I mean? Like I understood the meaning of that occupation in his own kind of fictional account. Uh, and the fact that it's a homeless group of people seeking solace, quite literally in cells. You know, there's a point where the characters, family with their mom, you know, they go inside to to seek shelter um, in the actual cells of, of Alcatraz. Uh, so many, so many powerful moments in this book. Thank you again way for bringing this to me, reminding me to read it. If anybody hasn't seen it yet, please pick it up. Even if you're not from the Bay, it's not just for Jay. For <laughs> it's not just for Bay people. Uh, it, it is a beautiful book, and this he is a, a special talent. So I have full endorsement there. I do. We only have a couple minutes left, but I want to make sure that we do talk about Go Ahead in the Rain uh, because I have a couple of important questions for you guys. Like I, I hate to. Um, I'll get this out of the way right away. I was not crazy about this book. And maybe it was because my expectations were too high because I really liked the conceit of the book, which is, you know, a memoir told through, you know, one person's experience of the music of A Tribe Called Quest. And that just really resonated with me. And I was like, yes, I'm ready for this. Go ahead. Were you a Tribe fan? I am a Tribe fan. Yeah. Huge Tribe fan. I asked that because um, I have not. I... Every hardcore tribe fan that I know that read the book does not like the book. Boom. There you go. He it's like, uh, yeah, if you know, if you love this band, right, then you should be able to mirror that experience and someone else's experience. But it's like it, I, I don't want to make any accusations <laughs> out here in public. But I was like reading this book like, bro, did this guy just watch the documentary about a tribe called Quest <laughs> and then decide to write a fictional account of him being a fan? Because this there's no meaningful information in here. You know what I mean? Like I can tell you that like a girl named Hannah made a mixtape for me with Midnight Marauder songs on it. And her dad was a rabbi and she was a graffiti artist and she had baby blue Adidas shorts and we made out on her bedroom floor. Wherever you are, Hannah, shout out. Those are immediate. Like, it's like I can taste Garcia Vega blunts in my mouth. Didn't know where that was going to end, but I like where you went with it. Garcia Vega blunts. <laughs> I got and many it. other things too. <laughs> Hannah was a very sweet girl and we smoked a lot of blunts in those days. And, you know, he, he makes attempts at those kinds of memories, but uh, I'll tell you two things that got me, right? Like, fine. I, I really, like I said, I don't want to 
pull this out. I don't want to like dog this book. I just want to be honest about my opinion about it. But here are two things that are in dispute. And I need you guys to help me figure out how this got past an editorial board. Number one, uh, and I'm going to talk about the Bay Area again. So you got to give me a break. Uh, he's listing all the photographs of people who are on the cover of Midnight Marauders album, right? You know, because that's the one where it has like pictures of a bunch of people's heads. That was Midnight Marauders, right, Sway? Yeah, everybody has a picture of the head with the headphones on. Picture of the heads with the headphones on. It's like it's like a who's who of hip hop at the time. And it was like a really big deal because you could pick people out and be like, oh shit, like Ice T is on a Tribe Called Quest album cover. Like that's trippy, you know? And the the guys from Far Side are on there, right? So he mentions the Far Side. And he describes them as a Bay Area hip hop group. Uh, And anybody who knows anything is that if the Bay has beef with any region, it's L.A. (laughs) Because uh, they always steal our shit and get credit for it. I'm looking at you, Snoop. (laughs) All right. I won't hesitate to call Snoop out because he'll be the first one to come out here and say, I got all my game from the Bay. Uh, But, you know, Farside obviously is from L.A. They're a great band. I love them. But they're so L.A. to me. You can just throw them on and they sound like L.A. They have a song about hanging, meeting a girl on Crenshaw. You know what I mean? Uh, And the fact that he (laughs) the fact that he could get that wrong is like, bro, like you not only do you not listen to Tribe, but you actually probably don't listen to hip hop. You know, (laughs) I know that's crazy. Right. Like, again, but I don't know. I think that's pretty fair. Right. Or at least your editor didn't listen to hip hop, whatever. You know, also don't Google. Yeah, not everybody. Yeah, where does that idea even come from? It's not even like an easy mistake to make. Uh, okay, the second one is much more egregious because the theme, the claim is more serious. Obviously, he pulls in a lot of political moments from the time. Uh, so he talks about Rodney King, right? Uh, which was uh, an incident that unfolded throughout the mid-90s from the actual incident and the footage to the trial and that eventually led to the riots. Um, and he's talking about... Uh, Rodney King in relationship to Black Lives Matter, right? Like the generational shift or what is the divide? Now he's saying we've seen so much footage of so many black people being killed by the police. Uh, And in that context, he says that the police beat Rodney King to death. I'll give you the actual quote. Josue, I sent this to you in a text message. Do you remember this? I took a photo of it. I took a photo of it. Sent it, circled it, sent it to Josue, and my actual caption was, I'm done with this dude. Because, you know, I mean, anybody who experienced that remembers and knows that uh, he was a public figure. You know, he was very much alive. For fact, a long time. In fact, he's the one who said, you know. Why can't we all just can't get we along? all just get along? Which he was ridiculed for. But, like, to me, I was like, bro, that's the most profound thing anybody said about any of it, to be honest, you know. Yeah, so here's the quote. I'll read it right now. He's he's writing to Q-Tip. It isn't like the low-end days, Tip. The police killed Rodney King on a grainy video then. Oh. The police killed Rodney King on a grainy video then. And it's not a metaphor. The camera shook, and one might have to look closely to see the body twitching on the ground. From afar, it looked as if the black batons were crashing into a single black mass. Now there is death on video everywhere. And it's true that there is death on video everywhere now. But there was not death on video then. You know, that's not to excuse anybody or make it sound like it wasn't egregious or horrific. It's just wrong. How did that get missed? How did that get missed? And I'm calling you out on the carpet, University of Texas Press, Austin. Get back at me, at me. And please explain how this egregious fact. I mean, it's like I'm also looking at his age and I'm thinking, like, did he just Google like, oh, what was what was what were woke people doing in the 90s? Oh, yeah. Rodney King. You know, where's he from? Um, 
He's from Ohio. Columbus, Columbus, Ohio. But you don't yeah. have to be from anywhere. If you were alive at that time, I mean, it's I was just I mean, thinking maybe not in America. I was like, maybe yeah, he was. Maybe, but yeah. I mean, like, that how was, did you? Yeah. So, right, I don't want to take those two things and say, like, your whole book is undermined because of those two things. But I already kind of had an issue, especially because, you know, I'm I'm a creative person. So I get jealous, right? When other artists do something that I think is a good idea, I'm like, damn, I should have written a memoir about my experience with Tribe Called Quest and talked about Hannah and her dad, the rabbi, and when I was smoking all those blunts. Uh, and then I read it and I was like, yeah, not only, like, it's a good idea and it was squandered. So, Josue, I know uh, uh, I've been talking a lot and I don't want to put you on the spot, but you did mention a couple things about the book um, that you took issue with. Maybe, as I recall, it was generational, right? Your your beef. I I like him. I really liked the book. I thought at first I was like, man, it's kind of sick. Like, what a good idea. You know, love letter to Tribe Called Quest. Also, I just like, I I like Kanye Federer as a critic. I think he should kind of when he writes about stuff that's like now, when he writes about Chance the Rapper, he writes about, you know, stuff, you know, that he's doing, I think it makes a lot of sense. But like this one, it was just a little bit, uh, it was a talent, Jen. And it almost feels like, it is this generational thing. It almost feels like speaking to my nephews about hip hop. Where they're like, oh, 90s, right? Huh? They're like, 90s, huh? Right? Yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? And then you got to be like, well, yeah. And then they'll be you, like, well, this What guy. do you think that means? <laughs> Like, you know, tell me so what you like, think it means when you say '90s hip hop. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think I think it ends up being this. I have to kind of see it through their lens to see the way that they see it, almost. And it's almost. But he's uh, not that much younger like, than us. He's he's thirty five years old. Like he's maybe three or four years younger than us. He's not like from a new generation. If he were. Then I would say, fine, right? Every generation experiences things differently, uh, and I wouldn't expect him to have this firsthand account. But he presents it as a firsthand account, and but still sounds like someone who's just discovered it to me, you know. And I like I don't know much about his criticism, so I'll take you at your word. I believe he's. I, I mean, he's like a good writer, you know what I mean? He he understands the language. He's a poet, right? So it's not like he, he has bullshit sentences. Um, but I read, you know, he was in that New York Times 25 songs that matter. Like he wrote the Bruce Springsteen thing. Right. Yeah. And I was like, you could do a find and replace of this, of his tribute to Bruce Springsteen. Just like take out Bruce Springsteen and put in Tribe Called Quest. And be like, that's just the same. That's the book. Like he doesn't, it's not art specific. He uses a lot of platitudes where it's like, it's the greatest record ever made. My favorite. There's just like a lot of hyperbole uh, without depth was was my issue. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking. He, he wrote a book, man, and he got it published and it's not without merit. Uh, but I had to say those two things in good conscience, um, at least about Rodney King, which really blew my mind. And, and you're right, Josue. I mean, I, I, the, the, the book is not without merit. You know, I'm not telling people not to read it. You should check it out, especially if you don't know anything about tribe. If you don't know anything about Tribe, this is a great book. <laughs> he could just be writing about a fictional band, you know, and you'd be like, oh, this band sounds cool, you know? <laughs> if, if you love Tribe, buckle up, because you're going to be uh, you're gonna be a little frustrated, as I was. Travis, um, what did people say who are Tribe? Now I'm just curious. It was sort of the same. I know three people who read it who are hardcore Tribe fans. One, One's a D- DJ, and the other two both musicians. And they just didn't like it. They just felt like, I think it's similar. They're like, they were surprised that he was the same age as them. They just didn't feel like it was someone who loved a tribe called Quest. 
they were like, this is sort of just like like the uh, bad wonder years, but around a tribe called Quest. wonder here yeah i mean it's true you know like he has this whole like all these chat like the things that are happening in his life at the time and i hate to say this like are just like not particularly interesting you know he's like he's like oh and then i you know it's like i almost got into a fight with a guy at school and i was like oh okay (laughs) like if kevin arnold listened to a tribe called this is the book that he would tell you about. Wow, that's the metaphor I needed. Now, every time I explain somebody about this book, I'd be like, you know what? I came up with a metaphor for this. It's basically like, remember that show, This Boy's Life? It's basically like This Boy's Life or right. Wonder Years. Wonder Years, right? Was it Wonder Years or just. Yes, it was the Wonder, Wonder Years. Years was the yes. Wonder Years. I was like, it's basically like a Wonder Years. I'll tell you. Uh, fine, fine analogy, man. Yeah. Although Winnie true. Cooper, uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons to watch that show. <laughs> I feel like I'm denigrating Wonder Years by comparing it to this book. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> because I'm a Tribe fan and because he said the police beat Riding King to death, which is so to egregious. Death. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean. And he's thinking a poet. Of- he's a poet from like, so like, if there's anything, I'm just going to say it, like, I feel like every black poet has like a Rodney King poem. Like you want to get that right. And I say that as wow. a black poet. Like you want to get that right. Wow. As a poet, I feel like as a black poet, I feel like I can say that. We all have somewhere in our journal a Rodney King poem. Yeah. yeah. It was wanna- like, you know, when I went to creative writing school, I was like, all right, well, every like girl in this class is gonna write about losing her virginity because that's just that's part of what you do we're students and that's the the passage of time you know what i mean you you cut your teeth on writing a story about losing your virginity you put it away forever and you move on and write other uh that you're saying this that's the equivalent here yeah and so you want to get that right you got to have your right you want to get that right you want to you want to get it right yeah i'm yeah i was he lived (laughs) he lived he lived and was a public figure and was like on a reality show just not that many years ago like he he died eventually but that was recent i want to say just a few 2014 or something like that he was on celebrity rehab yes i mean at the very least sir did you not watch celebrity rehab <laughs> you or, google. or google <laughs> yeah like that's funny if we look at his google history and it's like did rodney King die? die and he like went to the wrong website and got the wrong information <laughs> like it was a false flag that's not what happened. No, that's not what happened. He didn't finish the Snopes article. Yeah, right. He just read he the first get, sentence. He of didn't get song. to the false. Yeah, this is false. <laughs> Don't believe this. He died in two thousand four. Wow. Teen. Thank, thank you for being here, Travis, because you've actually helped to contextualize why it's so egregious. That is pretty awful. Yeah, I was surprised, but now you've given it another layer, which which is your gift, as we all know. Thanks. <laughs> you push us to be our greatest <laughs> selves. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to thank both of you guys. This has been a lively, spirited conversation. I have so thank much you. to for you as friends and as artists. Uh, this is a real joy. I would love for this to be an ongoing feature. Please. Uh, and yeah. at the very least, let's keep sharing book titles with each other. Absolutely. Um, love you guys. Thanks so much for making time tonight. Thanks to our listeners. Until next time, quest on, everybody. This episode of Quest on Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California. 